Hello, everybody. This is Radio Johnny from the Leta Recovery Center in downtown Moscow, and welcome to another Recovery Radio broadcast. Recovery Radio is an outreach of the Leta Recovery Center located at 531 South Main Street in Moscow. You can contact the LRC by phone at 208-883-1045 or by email at LetaRecoveryCenter at gmail.com. You can find them on the web at LetaRecoveryCenter.org and on Facebook. Recovery Radio's purpose is to share with our community how addiction and behavioral health disorders affect us all and to share the recovery resources available in our area, along with the personal stories of people in and around recovery, highlighting their experience, insight, and hope for continuing recovery. Like I said earlier, this is Radio Johnny. I am a grateful recovered alcoholic, recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and I'm going to jump into the uh, calendar. Weekdays by appointment is the Harm Reduction Safe Syringe Exchange, uh, followed by Recovery Coaching and Peer Support, which is available online or in person, but we'd like you to schedule it. And that's weekdays. Uh, Vandal Recovery at the Center on the U of I campus, that's weekdays, 8.30 to 4.30. Alcoholics Anonymous has a daily meeting uh, at noon, Narcotics Anonymous meets every day at 7 p.m. Sexaholics Anonymous meets Monday, Tuesday, and Thursdays at 8.30, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Reentry Support Group is Mondays at 6.30. The AA Monday Men's Meeting is Mondays at 5.30. AA Women's Meeting is live at St. Mark's Episcopal Church and available on Zoom through our calendar. That's Mondays at 7.30. The Recovery Peer Volunteer Meeting is the last Monday of the month at 6 p.m. Grief Group meets the first Tuesday of the month at 5. The Leta Recovery Center Board of Directors Meeting is the second Tuesday of every month at 3.45 and the public is invited. Vandal All Recovery Meeting at the Center on campus is Tuesdays at 6 p.m. The Events Committee meets Wednesdays at 2. New Volunteer Orientation is Wednesdays at 3 o'clock. Overeaters Anonymous is Wednesdays at 5.30. Oscar Mike Vets Coffee and Conversation is Wednesdays at 6.30. Recovery Radio, you're listening to it now, is Thursdays at about 1.10. Movie and Game Night. Thursdays, 5 to 8. Intern meeting is Fridays at 2. All recovery meeting, live and on Zoom, is Fridays at 5 till 5.45. Yoga with Katrin is Fridays at 5.30. Al-Anon, live and on Zoom, is Fridays at 8. Alcoholics Anonymous Sunday morning group uh, meets at the Campus Christian Center, and that's Sundays at 9.30. And uh, a couple of things to note, uh, we have free Narcan. Narcan is an opioid reversal drug, can save somebody from an overdose, and uh, we have it. If you want it, get in contact with us, uh, and we'll get you set up with it. And coming up on Wednesday, March 1st, is our annual fundraiser, and uh, we need your help. It's a fantastic fundraiser, again, March 1st, Wednesday. 
Uh, our fundraising breakfast and dessert both need table captains. And a table captain's job is just to invite seven of their friends to a free meal. During the event, we discuss our programs and ask for a donation. Our keynote speaker is Rosie Andueza, uh, the State of Idaho's Substance Use Disorder Single State Authority. This is a fast-paced event you'll be proud to be associated with, and we promise you and your friends a great meal and an interesting program, and that will be at the Best Western Inn, so mark it on your calendars, Wednesday, March 1st. And uh, if you can help out, you'd like to be a table captain, uh, send an email to daryl at latarrecoverycenter at gmail.com and we'll get you set up and we appreciate the help now this week uh, we're gonna keep going with what we started last week which was some readings from the uh, big book uh, alcoholics anonymous and uh, this week we're going to dive into uh, chapter five and chapter five is titled how it works and here we go rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these, we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil, until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, and powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 
11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Many of us exclaimed, what in order? I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if he were sought. Being convinced, we were at step three, which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that, and just what do we do? The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangement would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. In trying to make these arrangements, our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But, as with most humans, he is more likely to have varied traits. What usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more. He becomes, on the next occasion, still more demanding or gracious, as the case may be. Still, the play does not suit him. Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, he is sure that other people are more to blame. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker when trying to be kind? Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things he wants? And do not his actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is he not, even in his best moments, a producer of confusion rather than harmony? Our actor is self-centered, egocentric, as people like to call it nowadays. He is like the retired businessman who lolls on the beach in Florida, sunshine in the winter, complaining of the sad state of the nation. The minister who sighs over the sins of the 20th century. Politicians and reformers who are sure that all would be utopia 
if the rest of the world would only behave. The outlaw safecracker who thinks society has wronged him, and the alcoholic who has lost all and is locked up. Whatever our protestations, are not the most of us concerned with ourselves, our resentments, or our self-pity? Selfishness, self-centeredness, that, we think, is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that sometime in the past we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must or it kills us. God makes that possible. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we cannot live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. This is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father, and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed freedom. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer, being all-powerful. He provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his present, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. We are now at step three. Many of us said to our maker as we understood him, God, I offer myself to thee, to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready, that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. We found it very desirable to take this step with an understanding person such as our wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. But it is better to meet God alone than with one who might misunderstand. The wording was, of course, quite optional, so long as we expressed the idea, voicing it without reservation. This was only a beginning, though, if honestly and humbly made, an effect, sometimes a very great one, was felt at once. Next, we launched on a course of vigorous action, 
the first step of which was a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom, so we had to get down to causes and conditions. Therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding and fact-facing process. It is an effort to discover the truth about the stock and trade. One object is to disclose damaged or unsellable goods, to get rid of them promptly without regret. If the owner of the business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. We did exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup, which caused our failure. Being convinced that self, manifested in various ways, was what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stand all forms of spiritual disease, for we have been not only mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. We listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. We asked ourselves why we were angry. In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore. We were burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambition, our personal or sexual relations, which had been interfered with? And at this point, a little editorial here, they actually show a list of uh, the sort of thing. And it's like the first column is I'm resentful at, and the example is Mr. Brown. Column two is the cause. His attention to my wife told my wife of my mistress. Brown may get my job at the office. And in the third column, it says affects my sex relations, self-esteem, fear, sex relations again, self-esteem, security, self-esteem, so it, uh, it lists that out through several examples. And then we went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. When we were finished, we considered it carefully. The first thing apparent was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse, and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. To the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile. But with the alcoholic, whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, 
This business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal, for when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again, and with us, to drink is to die. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. We turned back to the list, for it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had power to actually kill. How could we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. This was our course. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick, though we did not like their symptoms and the way they dis- these disturbed us. They, like ourselves, were sick too. We asked God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, This is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. We avoid retaliation or argument. We wouldn't treat sick people that way. If we do, we destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. Referring to our list again, putting our minds to the wrongs that others had done, we resolutely looked for our own mistakes. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our own faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. Notice that the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer, and the wife. The short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. But did not we, ourselves, set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. We reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper, even though we had no resentment in connection with them. We asked ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance had failed us? Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem, or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. Perhaps there is a better way. We think so. For we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns, just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us do, and humbly rely on him, 
does he enable us to match calamity with serenity. We never apologize to anyone for depending on our Creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it is the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. At once, we commence to outgrow fear. Now about sex. Many of us needed an overhauling there. But above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off the track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes. Absurd extremes, perhaps. One set of voices cry that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it, or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow man no flavor for his fare, and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. We want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? We reviewed our own conduct over the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. In this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal of our future sex life. We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? We asked God to mold our ideals and to help us live up to them. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised and loathed. Whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in doing so. In other words, we treat sex as we would treat any other problem. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. God alone can judge our sex situation. Counsel with persons is often desirable, but we let God be the final judge. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. Suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only a half-truth. It depends on us and our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and will have, our, have learned our lesson. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are the facts out of our experience. To sum up about sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal, 
for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity, and for the strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. If we have been thorough about our personal inventory, we have written down a lot. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. We have begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. If we have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness, we have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill towards all men, even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. In this book, you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. If you have already made a decision and an inventory of your grosser handicaps, you have made a good beginning. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. And that's the end of chapter 5. So I think I'll come back with a few comments on chapter 5, but for right now, let's Listen to a little Bob Dylan. I'll get a little drink of water, get my voice back. And uh, you are listening to KRFP 90.3, Moscow Pullman. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. A socialite with a long string of pearls But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody Well, it may be the devil Or it may be the Lord But you're gonna have to serve somebody Maybe a rock and roll addict Prancing on the stage Money, drugs at your command Women in a cage You may be a businessman Or some high degree thief They may call you doctor Or they may call you chief But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, you are You're gonna have to serve somebody Serve somebody Well, it may be the devil Or it may be the Lord But you're gonna have Serve somebody. Serve somebody. It may be a state trooper, it might be a young Turk, maybe the head of some bigger TV network. You may be rich or poor, you may be blind or lame, maybe living in another country under another name, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Maybe a construction worker working on a home. Might be living in a mansion. You might live in a dome. 
banks You may be somebody's landlord You may even own banks But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, you're gonna have to serve somebody Serve somebody Well, it may be the devil It may be the Lord But you're gonna have to serve somebody Maybe a city councilman taking bribes on the side Maybe working in a barber shop, you may know how to cut hair And maybe somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, you're gonna have to serve somebody Radio on KRFP 90.3, coolest station in the nation, or at least in Moscow and Pullman. I'm Radio Johnny, and uh, here to uh, talk a little bit now about the uh, Chapter 5, and it goes over our, basically our fourth and fifth steps, which is uh, you know, taking a personal inventory and then sharing that with somebody, a trusted person, uh, hopefully. We refer to God a lot in this chapter because we are looking forward to becoming, as some call it, God conscious, or I think more realistic for me, it was I was looking for a power to draw on that wasn't me because I was failing hopelessly with dealing with this alcohol problem I had. You know, I had, I had lost jobs, uh, relationships had gone by the wayside. Uh, I had heard a lot of feelings and, and done some pretty pretty reprehensible things uh, that will go unmentioned at this time. But the point was that running my own life on my self-will, like it says in there, 
just run riot. I did whatever I wanted to do to make me feel good. And as long as I got mine, I didn't care about you. I wasn't worried about, you know, trying to be helpful to people. Oh, sure, I was helpful to people as long as I got a pat on the back for it or some money or something like that. So I was absolutely selfish and self-centered, like it talks about there. And I needed something in my life uh, that I could rely on to push me in the right direction. And falling on this higher power is, seemed to be something that uh, was necessary for me to make the change and to start living life where other people could benefit from my presence in their life. It's not easy for an alcoholic to make a sudden change or a switch like that. And certainly I didn't, but at least I got a start by following these 12 suggestions. Uh, I, I admitted that I, could, I was absolutely powerless over alcohol and that my life was absolutely unmanageable. I had abdicated all responsibility in my life to the people around me. Uh, I didn't worry about uh, paying uh, rent or you know, eating the right foods to try and stay healthy. My physical condition was horrible. I was suffering with uh, alcoholic hepatitis, uh, you know, getting the yellow in the eyes and the skin. It was all really bad. And without help, I was stuck. I, I couldn't not drink. I had lost all power of choice in the matter. I had to drink. And by going through this inventory and finding out a lot of my grosser defects, like they say, like you know, Persic, the primary thing was, yeah, I was selfish and self-centered. Uh, I was just overcome by every kind of fear. Oh my God, what did I say last night at the party? How much did I drink? Did I spoil it? Uh, who, who is this person I'm, I'm laying next to here in bed? What sort of lies did I tell and to who? And there was no way for me to reconcile that and, and try to be happy. I was just in a constant state of fear of, oh my God, what's going to happen next? And that's a horrible way to try and live. So I followed the suggestions. You know, I, I uh, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And I made a decision to turn my life and my will over to the care of this God thing, uh, which I call a God of my non-understanding, even to this day, because I quit trying to figure it out. But it turns out that uh, I'm able to sit back and say, okay, God, let's do this thing today. You know, and I went through the process of that inventory. As a matter of fact, I've been through it several times. Uh, the first time with my first sponsor, we went through all the steps in a matter of a couple of weeks. And uh, today when I work with uh, other men who are trying to get into recovery, Sometimes it takes months to get through because I want to make sure that we do what they say, which was to be fearless and thorough from the very start. And that takes a lot of time, and that takes a lot of 
getting down to uh, brass tacks, so to speak, getting it all out there on the table and uh, looking for a way to get past it, uh, to recognize the past, to ask for forgiveness, and to go about making things right, which is not always easy. Uh, we even have a little thing uh, we call the uh, Alcoholic Fifth Amendment. You know, we, we, we try and make things right with people wherever we can, except to do so would injure them or others. It talks later on in the book, and we'll get to that in a while, that, uh, you know, maybe if our spouse has known that we've been a bit wild, as they call it in the book, it might not be fair to share that with them because they may want to know with who and when, and that would endanger uh, another person. So we might have to skip out on that and just speak in general terms that, hey, maybe we were unfaithful. And maybe we did some things that, uh, you know, we're not proud of, but we're willing to go forward and, and work on making our lives better. But Chapter 5 is loaded with a lot of stuff. And, you know, again, you can get one of these books, go to any AA meeting. You can look at our uh, district website here in uh, the Palouse. It's, uh, uh, the website is district22aa.org. And uh, you can find me, go to a meeting. They all have books. Be happy to uh, sell you one for a few bucks. They're not expensive. And uh, if you can't afford one, uh, you know, ask to pay for it on time or see if they can just give you one. Uh, They'll probably do it. Pretty reasonable that way. So that's about all I got for today. And uh, thanks for listening again. And... uh, we're going to have uh, next week, we're going to have a uh, interview with uh, Max. Uh, Max is a great guy. I met him through the program. He's got a crazy good story, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So stay tuned for that one. And uh, I'm going to close with the usual. You know, if you think you have a problem with alcohol or other drugs or behavioral health, you do. Sing